You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, what does a French horn sound like when you distort it or mix it with a synthesizer? The director of UW-Madison's Electroacoustic Research Space joins the show to share some of the new sounds he's come up with. Now, U.S. Olympic track and field champion Tori Bowie died tragically last month at the age of 32. Earlier this week, the autopsy report revealed that she died from pregnancy complications. The medical examiner in her case determined that Bowie may have suffered from eclampsia, a disorder related to high blood pressure during pregnancy. The gold medalist was eight months pregnant and was otherwise in good health. Her unexpected death served as a stark reminder of the maternal health risks involved in pregnancy and the disproportionate effects on black women in particular. We're learning more about those health risks and disparities in pregnancy along with efforts to solve them. Tiffany Green is an assistant professor in the Departments of Population Health Sciences and Obstetrics and Gynecology at UW-Madison. I talked to her earlier today. Now, let's start by talking about this uh, tragic uh, story about uh, Tori Bowie. Uh, can you talk about eclampsia? And this is more common pre-eclampsia. What are those for people who aren't familiar? So so for those who aren't familiar, there are certain conditions in pregnancy, um, especially those related to high blood pressure, that can be very dangerous for the birthing parent um, or the baby. Preeclampsia and eclampsia often happen before um, labor and delivery, but they could actually happen after those points as well. What are some of the risks and signals that, that this may be coming, preeclampsia and then eclampsia? A big one is a big one is high is 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 um, elevated elevated blood pressure, which is one of the reasons why clinicians. I'm not a clinician, uh, but one of the reasons why they uh, follow pregnant people so closely in terms of blood pressure is making sure that you don't that you don't have those those conditions because they can be fatal as we as we saw here, um, and they can result in, in all kinds of maternal morbidity and mortality. Um, it can it can also cause um, uh, organ failure, all kinds of things that are just incredibly dangerous, which is why clinicians stay on top of it so heavily. Um, since some of the symptoms, in addition to high blood pressure, are going to be things like um, swelling of the extremities, like your hands and your feet. Now, we know that the United States has a higher incidence of maternal mortality compared to other countries, and you and I have talked in the past uh, that's not evenly distributed. Uh, very big racial disparities. Can you talk about that a little? Yes, and you know, and and I, I, when I thought about coming here, I wish I had easy answers. I wish I could give your your listeners an easy answer as to why that's the case. But as I've shared with you before, we've identified this disparity in 1917, over a hundred years ago, and even before that. And so these disparities continue continue to persist. Um, but one reason, of course, is that, you know, that people at structural disadvantages like racially marginalized groups and other groups um, come into pregnancy without having the same access to health care uh, prior to getting pregnant. Um, you know, they, they experience other stressors. There are so many things that determine why black birthing people and pregnant people come into pregnancy with more challenges relative to other groups. Yeah, when when we hear a story uh, like the the tragic one about Tori Bowie, I think we think about okay, what could we have done in the days before this, or maybe in the months? Uh, as you and I have talked about in the past, we might be needing to start years before. Can you talk about some of the structural things out there that that might be years in the making before before that pregnancy even happens that that raises that risk? 
Well, there are so 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 many factors in that matrix. One of them is, as we talked about before, is where you live, where you work, um, where you play. And we know that um, that that factors such as segregation, right, are linked to poor poor health outcomes among among people, including Black people, such as high blood pressure, right. So those are things. Those are things that matter. Um, making sure that you um, and and I and to be honest with you, I don't think that healthcare is the the only answer or even the hugest answer. But clearly, with things like preeclampsia and eclampsia, um, monitoring by a healthcare provider is is also super important to have. So uh, you know, my my view is I've always been pretty transparent about. Is, is, is really thinking about the very structure of our society and how it, it predisposes people um, to be sick um, and, and to come into pregnancy with more challenges relative to others. And I want to be clear that this is not a story about individual level behaviors mm-hmm. or individual level failings. It's about the way that we structured our society in a way that, that continues to promote inequality. Talking to Tiffany Green, assistant professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences and Obstetrics and Gynecology at UW-Madison, looking at uh, maternal health risks, eclampsia, preeclampsia, the long-term things that uh, that can put people at higher risk. Let's take it to the pregnancy now. And, and we've heard a, account after account in recent years, and, and before that, uh, Tiffany, uh, black moms not feeling, not being listened to by healthcare providers, uh, poor communication sometimes for, from providers. What kind of things can we do to improve that, that communication and the care at that stage? You know, that's, that's always a challenging question for me to answer, Rob, because I think we, we do know, we do have evidence that, um, that discrimination and, and racism in an aggregate sense, these environments are, are contributing to worse outcomes. But I don't think we have a really good handle on the links between um, provider beliefs and behavior and actual treatment. And that, that is a really tricky and difficult thing um, for me to express because I want to be clear. It's not that I'm minimizing the role of discrimination in these kinds of behaviors. It's that we don't really have as good a handle as I would like us to have on those outcomes. I think what we can do what we can do is really do more to make sure that we are having patient-centered medical treatment, that we are listening to, to pregnant people, that we're making sure that they have the resources that we need. Um, one example, full disclosure, I'm involved in the evaluation. I think I shared this before with you. It's the ConnectRx program in Dane County. And that is a program that um, supports Black pregnant people with certain risk factors, including being unhoused, maybe experiencing food insecurity, stressors, and it connects them with community-based organizations um, to make sure that they are getting their social needs met. And in addition, it assigns them a doula if they would like one. And that doula accompanies them at, at labor and delivery if they would like, and also supports them postpartum. And um, and that, and I, and I want to say it's not responsible to speculate about what happened in the in Tory's case, mm-hmm. But, but it's really clear that we, we are a society that often leaves pregnant people and birthing people by the wayside in terms of social supports. And one of, the, one of the key things that matters in terms of social supports is are people that can not just help you take care of the baby, but people can, can watch you for symptoms, of, symptoms like postpartum eclampsia, right? Um, those things matter in terms of watching for uh, symptoms of uh, severe maternal morbidity that can turn into something worse. 
when you look at Wisconsin in particular, what do you see when it comes to uh, these disparities we're talking about and uh, ways to try to bridge them here? Yeah, so we do we do certainly experience um, disparities in uh, pregnancy-related morbidity in general. Um, those disparities are lower in absolute terms relative to national averages. However, the disparities are wider. Um, actually, the group that has the highest um, highest rates of pregnancy-related morbidity are Indigenous populations in Wisconsin, followed very closely by um, Black. Um, birthing populations, right? So this this is something that's really important to understand. And the same is true uh, for pregnancy mortality, right? We have lower levels of pregnancy uh, pregnancy related mortality, but the disparities, uh, black white disparities, are are wider, right? And so those are some things to think about. So what can we do about it? Is the million dollar question? Mm-hmm. Uh, one is is realize that this is a complicated thing that. Uh, we want to be able to say, let's fix it at the hospital level. Let's fix let 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 let's fix medical care providers. And while um, I'm, while I want to be clear that we do need to fix medical systems, that's not where the majority of our deaths are coming from. A lot of a lot of what we don't talk about is a lot of pregnancy related deaths um, in Wisconsin are coming as a result of of things like um, overdoses. Right? They're coming from things like. Um, um, other cardiovascular conditions, right? These are things that that we need we need to fix in terms of our policies, right? This is not just an individual. This is not an individual level behavior thing. It is a policy um, decision that we have made, and we need to address those things quickly. We'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Yes, no problem. Great to be here. That was Tiffany Green, assistant professor in the Departments of Population Health Sciences and Obstetrics and Gynecology at UW-Madison. She's with with us today to talk about maternal health and pregnancy complications after the recent tragic death of Olympic track and field champion Tori Bowie. Coming up, a UW-Madison music professor joins the show to tell us what electroacoustic music is and to tell us about how he and students experiment with instruments and sound. That's coming up next here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Now, what does a French horn sound like in your head? Maybe it's something like this. But what if you changed how it sounds with a distortion pedal like you might see used with a guitar? That sound is from a collection of recordings called Air Names. It was made by our next guest with the help of the Electroacoustic Research Space, or EARS for short, at UW-Madison's School of Music. It's a studio that lets musicians experiment with, you know, your normal acoustic instruments, a French horn or a flute, say, and electronic instruments like synthesizers to come up with really different, maybe even completely new kinds of sounds and music. Dan Graboy is an assistant professor of horn and the director of UW-Madison's electroacoustic research space. I talked to him last year. Paint us, please, a picture of this lab. This lab is a former classroom that has been repurposed 
so it's in the Humanities Building, but it doesn't have the aura of the Humanities <laughs> Building. It's updated a little bit, and it is chock full of electronic instruments. What was the inspiration for you to have not just these electronic instruments, but this interface between traditional acoustic instruments and all this electronic gear? Well, for me, that started when I got to UW. I had before been the chair of contemporary performance at the Manhattan School of Music, and I hired a colleague to come and teach electronic music to my students, and they were making incredible sounds, and I thought, wow, I could change the sound of the horn and play a much bigger variety of music. So when I got here, I was provided with some research funds, and I started buying pedals and microphones and that sort of thing. And I made the Air Names recording that you just played a little bit of, which was mostly featuring the horn in various kinds of distortion and and with effects on it. From there, everything derived out of an email that I received one summer, and it said... We are offering a round of UW 2020 large equipment grants. And the idea behind this grant was really, hey, chemistry department needs an electron microscope, and so does biochemistry. So let's provide one electron microscope and have them share. And I thought, well, I could put together a ton of pieces of electronic music equipment and call that large equipment. And and so I put in an application. I got everything I asked for. So thank you, Worf. (laughs) Now let's check out another clip, another taste of the music. This is from your latest project, uh, released coming out in October, I think, called Fire Names. I think I'm hearing a, a fairly unprocessed French horn out front there. What's going on behind it, though? So this really is electroacoustic acoustic music. The French horn's completely unprocessed, except that it's being recorded, obviously, mm-hmm. so there's some amount of uh, mixing going on. But, yes, yeah, so what I did is I wrote a tape track. Of course, there's no tape involved anymore. It's, everything is digitally recorded. But I used the instruments in ears to create this 44-minute-long tape track, and then I wrote a horn part to go on top of it. And so I, when I was recording the horn part, which I did in my basement with ears microphones, I, uh, I, uh, I, was, I didn't have to distort the horn at all. I wanted it to be very pure, and I played over that tape track. Now, I'm kind of a music nerd. As I looked at the list of your electronic equipment, it includes things like old uh, Moog synthesizers, uh, a theremin, I think, uh, and then some things I've never heard of, uh, including a continuum fingerboard. Yeah, that's actually my... If I had to choose a favorite child, it would be the continuum (laughs) fingerboard. Uh, It's an instrument that's been in production for something like 15 or 20 years, but it changes every few years and is updated. Um, It was invented by a someone named Lippold Hocken, who teaches engineering at the University of Illinois. And the reason it's called a continuum is it has a keyboard, but the keyboard is made of squishy foam with the notes more painted on the foam than actual separate notes. So you can drag your finger along the keyboard and make it go continuously, hence continuum fingerboard and it's a very expressive instrument so that makes me like a fretless bass where usually you'd have distinct notes there but without the frets you can move up and down 
Same thing. I never would have thought it possible for a keyboard. Yeah, it's an incredible invention, and it responds also in several other directions. So that side-to-side or X-axis is operating with the instrument, but there's also a Y-axis. So the keyboard has a certain thickness, and it's a synthesizer. So for some of the sounds, as you move your finger further away from you or more towards you, the sound will transform. And then the Z-axis, how hard you push down, generally controls how loud or soft you play, but it can be programmed to control anything you want. Talking to Dan Graboy from UW-Madison, director of the Electroacoustic Research Space. We're checking out some of their music, and I want to give a listen to, I think you're featuring your favorite kid, as you said, the Continuum Fingerboard, in this excerpt from Fire Names. Here's a listen. I think I'm hearing what is the continuum fingerboard with those where you can, yeah. yep. That bass line is continuum fingerboard, but the thing that goes is also continuum oh, fingerboard really? okay. with a different sound. This is all recorded multi-tracked, so you record one thing and then you put something else on top and you have infinite tracks that you can use. Okay, one more taste of that, I think. A, a later part here in Fire Names. about what we're hearing there right so everything you heard there is continuum and uh a big big juicy fat sound on the bottom and then on top this sort of sort of asian sounding instrument which is really interesting it uses that z axis how hard you push against it the harder you push against it the more it goes boing and bends up so if you just tap it it goes ding 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 and as you push harder boing 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 so it makes a really kind of an interesting ornamented sound. Okay, so this is, in effect, a music laboratory. What kind of things do music students get in and uh, experiment, uh, I guess, slash play with in there? So I have a band that's a student ensemble. It's actually a class. And the band is called $2 Broom. And if anybody <laughs> gets the reference, they win the prize for the day. Um but um, we improvise using the instruments. So students learn how to play the instruments, which is usually pretty easy. Most of the instruments have a very tactile interface. And in fact, for, say, a cellist or a violinist that has become uh, very, very engrossed in their technique on their instrument, um, putting their hands in front of the theremin and moving them around and see what happens is a, is a really revelatory experience. It's no longer about just how you make that vibrato with your left hand and how you draw the bow, but just pure experimentation. So we go on stage with this band at the end of each semester and, and play for about an hour with nothing written down and nothing planned. Okay, but... Suppose somebody comes in there with a cello or a French horn or whatever. Uh, they've devoted their life to this instrument in a lot of ways, and they're playing through some of these processors and synthesizers and things like that. What is their reaction? Is it, this is cool, or wait, this isn't what my instrument is supposed to sound like? Usually their reaction is something that I can't even quote on the radio. <laughs> uh, they're in a generally, good way or a bad way? In a good way. Okay. 
they're usually so excited about what their instrument will sound like. And we do do that. We, For instance, we had a cellist play on our last concert, and he did some cello playing as well as playing other of the ears instruments. And, and he was running through effects. And what's so interesting is that you find that your playing changes based on what you're hearing, which is not that surprising, but it really draws that idea into focus, especially as you think of each musician as kind of a composer when you're improvising. So the ideas that are generated are inspired by the sound that's coming into your ears. Briefly, as we wrap up, live gigs for $2 Broom or any other uh, projects coming out where we could see this in action? Yes, but you'll have to stay tuned because we set our concerts kind of in the middle of the semester. We figure out a time when everyone's free and when we'll be ready, but... Uh, they may be billed as the electroacoustic on improv ensemble or two dollar broom. I'm not sure how our <laughs> like any band, will do. like What's any the real band. name. Yeah. The real name, as far as I'm concerned, is two dollar broom. Dan, thanks so much for sharing this with us today. Thank you very much. That's Dan Graboy. He's an assistant professor of horn and director of the electroacoustic research space or ears at UW Madison. I talked to him last year about his work at ears and to share some of the experimental music he's made there. Coming up Monday on Central Time, the Human Rights Campaign says there's a state of emergency for LGBTQ Americans. Find out why and look at the long story of progress and pushback. And it's mosquito and tick season in Wisconsin. A state expert joins the show for a look at the season so far and how to protect ourselves from diseases that can be carried by ticks and mosquitoes. You can share a condition report from your own backyard or your latest hike. What are you seeing out there? Email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. You can also share your questions about mosquitoes and ticks along the way. That and more coming up Monday here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, we talk about President Biden's plan to name a point person at the Education Department to address the huge increase in school book bans over the last few years. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up on this week's edition of Food Friday, we sift through the thousands of skillets on the market to decide which one's the right one for you. First, President Biden announced last week that he would name a point person in the education department to address the rise in school book bans. In 2022, attempted book bans at schools and public libraries reached an all-time high since the American Library Association started recording book bans 20 years ago. That continues the upward recent trend. According to an analysis by the group Penn America, about 40% of the banned books included LGBTQ characters and themes. About 40% featured characters of color. A handful of states have passed laws making it easier to challenge books, while Illinois recently passed a bill limiting book removals. Want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Have books been challenged in your school district, your local library? Have you led a challenge or asked for something to be reshelved elsewhere? What are your thoughts on schools keeping certain books off the shelves? Where should lines be drawn? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. 
Louise Robbins is an emeritus professor of library and information studies at UW-Madison and the author of The Dismissal of Miss Ruth Brown, Civil Rights, Censorship, and the American Library. Louise, welcome to Central Time. Thanks so much, Rob. Before we get into this new uh, point person in the education department, I just want to get your thoughts as someone who's observed these issues uh, and how they've played out over time. What are your thoughts on this last couple of years where you've seen these this big increase in challenges and removals of books? Well, it's very distressing. We've had challenges to books as long as there have been libraries, I suppose. But the intellectual freedom position of librarianship has evolved in an effort to make it possible for people to get a variety of opinions on different on different uh, subjects to keep allow people to learn as much as they can. So having more censorship, having more book bans makes it harder for people to gain new perspectives or even to support their own perspectives. Um, and I historically. Uh, Things have moved much more slowly because there have they've communicated. People have communicated by letter or by telephone, not by internet. So the uh, censorship hasn't gained steam the way it has in the last couple of years when we've been so extremely polarized. Part of the goal of this new uh, position in the education department would be to explain to schools in particular that removing books could infringe on students' uh, federal civil rights. Uh, what are your thoughts on the possibilities of a role like this in the federal government? Well, it's the it'll be a first, but there have been supports for for librarians in the past. But in this case, I think the having the weight of the Department of Education of the federal government to inform people is very helpful because it gives it gives heft and gives authority to that to that uh, understanding. In a school in particular, uh, parents might have a concern that uh, they don't want uh, sexual material, for example, or graphic descriptions of sexual material in a school. Uh, I mean, do we have a good process for deciding, hey, this book might be okay at a high school, but isn't okay at an elementary school, for example? There, there are processes for determining what should go into libraries. Librarians have a very elaborate process of reading reviews, reading the books, listening to others, making choices based on awards, reviews, and so on, and then putting them in the area they think is most helpful to students. I think there's also a, a process for removing books if that's, or challenging them. There, the challenger should have read the book in its entirety to be able to identify what portions of it are offensive to that person to make an argument for or against the book, and then to submit that to the librarian who ha normally has a, a committee set up to help review such things so that it can go through a process. Of course, when one person find, what one person finds offensive may not be offensive to someone else. So imposing the will of one individual on an entire school library would not be a very good idea. Might the answer to a particular book being challenged look different uh, from one community to another community? Does that process say, you know, our town here doesn't uh, think this is appropriate for kids of this age? Another community might come up with something different? And, and I don't know, maybe that's okay? 
it could be. I think that the the issue is, okay, we don't have very many people of color in this community, so we shouldn't have any books about people of color. Well, in the great wide world, you're going to run into people of color. You need to know something about other people, whether you have them in your community at this moment or not. So I think it's dangerous to say, well, we're a very uh, small kind of insular community, so we don't want to know about the world outside of us. I think that it would be best, of, of course, if people could be exposed to a wide variety of viewpoints. But yes, librarians try to take into consideration their communities and what the community wants and needs. We're talking to Louise Robbins, Emeritus Professor of Library and Information Studies at UW-Madison, looking at book bans, book challenges and removals in schools and libraries. The White House says they're going to have a new point person in the Education Department to work on that issue. And you can join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions, uh, your thoughts on the issue, maybe your experiences in your own community. 800-642-1234 is the number to call. Let's bring on a caller. Dennis is with us in Two Rivers. Dennis, hi. Hi. I was just uh, thinking about the Scopes Monkey Trial. That was uh, has something to do with teaching about uh, evolution in high school. Mm-hmm. And it's a religious thing. And for public schools, there should be a... <laughs> There should be a separation of church and state. Parochial schools, yeah, if they want to ban things, well, it's up to them. But as far as religion, well, you need to be careful whose religion you you want to ban because it seems like people want to ban everybody else's except theirs. Dennis, thanks for the call, Louise. Uh, religious basis for challenging books, how does that play out in practice? Well, that's. I think I agree with Dennis. I think it's very diff- dangerous to say my religion's okay, but yours isn't. Um, And I think this is going to have uh, ramifications across the board as we begin to, as we more and more fund, use federal funds or local funds to fund parochial or private schools. There should be some strings attached to that funding to make sure that people whose religion is not identical to that of the sponsor has have some rights in terms of collections as well. So I would, um, I think Dennis is right. We need to be careful whose religion or whether we're going to put restrictions on reli- on religious materials. Thanks for that call, Dennis, at 800-642-1234. Louise, as I mentioned at the outset, about 40% of the books banned, this is according to Pan America, uh, from 2021 to 2022, featured uh, LGBTQ plus themes and or characters. Uh, now, there there might be parents uh, who, who make these challenges who say, uh, you know what, I don't want my kid exposed to uh, what I consider, uh, the, the parent might say, a, a lifestyle I don't approve of that doesn't match my religious principles. How would you hope uh, schools and libraries deal with a, a complaint from that perspective? I think that there is a system that already in place where libraries can handle that. A parent can make clear to the librarian on some kind of form, if, if it needs to be formal, and it probably does, that my child is not to check out books about X, Y, and Z. Um, And the librarian can easily enough steer that child away from those books without limiting other children to to books uh, 
to selecting books that are that they I mixed that sentence up, didn't I? Without limiting other children. So um, I think that the issue is when you make a complaint, you need to say, I don't want my child doing this, but you don't necessarily have the right to tell another parent what his or her child can do. I think it's very certainly clear that you can limit what your own child does. Let's go back to our callers now. Ryan is with us in Glendale. Ryan, hi. Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I would describe myself as very pro-First Amendment, but I do worry about if we are going to uh, prohibit uh, or, or limit the authority of librarians in one area. That means that we're compelling the authority of librarians in other areas. Uh, and it seems like it could very easily lead to compelled speech, um, especially if there's a government entity in charge, like this proposed official at the Department of Education, to say that you must carry these books or you must promote these ideas. Ryan, thanks I'm, for the call. Louise, go ahead. Well, I'm not sure exactly what I, what uh, Ryan means. Ryan, when you say compelled speech, you mean that people are going to be forced to collect certain materials? Well, what I mean is if you say that the community has a very limited say in what's available, then it seems to me that that means that the government has been saying this material must be available whether the community wants it or not. And that, to me, seems to be a form of compelled speech. Well, I think, I think that is a potential danger. I don't foresee it happening. Because I think what's what the so far as I've been able to understand thus far, the position of the government is we're going to tell them what the what the law says, what the law has said so far about the rights of students to access library materials. We're not going to tell you that you have to stock X, Y, and Z books in your library, but to enable librarians to have a backup if they need some defense. Um, I, when, as an example, in the past, one of the most the strangest stories that I've come across is that in, the, uh, in 1958, I think it was, a children's book, Rabbit's Wedding, which you may have heard of, has a picture on the cover of a rat, black rabbit and a white rabbit. A librarian, the state librarian in Alabama almost lost her job because the, some legislators said that this was promoting interracial marriage. I doubt Garth Williams, the illustrator, ever thought about that when he did his book. But these kinds of, a person like this librarian needed to know that she had the right to fight for that book to be on the shelves. So it's it's just um, giving the person the uh, librarian some support and backup, and letting them know what the law actually is and what the the, the uh, perfect best practice in the profession is. There are lots of people out there who are have little libraries that don't have much support in terms of professional guidance, and this would be useful to those people if they need it. 
Brian, thanks for calling in. We're talking about school and library book bans with Louise Robbins, Emeritus Professor of Library and Information Studies at UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234. When do you think uh, a book should be removed from a library or a school library? If ever, have you participated on either part of a book challenge at a library? And what are your thoughts on this uh, big jump in the number of books being challenged or removed from libraries? Changes in state uh, laws in both directions, making it easier or harder to remove books? Call it an 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our conversation about President Biden's appointment of a book ban response coordinator at the U.S. Education Department. Louise Robbins is with us, Emeritus Professor of Library and Information Studies at UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234. There's been a big jump over the last couple of years in the number of books, the number of titles being challenged at school libraries and other libraries and book removals as well. Some states making it easier to take books off the shelves. Some, like Illinois, passing laws to make it more difficult. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Back to your calls. Allie is with us in New Richmond. Allie, hello. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. What did you want to bring up, Allie? Uh, So I am curious, access to books and freedom of information, is that a freedom of speech? And then I'm also curious, if the books are on the shelves and you don't like it, just don't read it. And we're in an age of you can get your hands on any books that you want. So even if they're banned, people will have access to them somewhere. Allie, thanks for the call. Louisa, Allie, first of all, asking, uh, you know, how much does the First Amendment play into these issues? The First Amendment plays into these issues a great deal. Freedom of speech also in implies a freedom to receive speech. If there's nobody to listen, there's no not much point of speaking. So this this is the two sides of the same coin. Freedom of speech and freedom of the press kind of go hand in hand. Uh, freedom to receive information is crucial. Um, and I think that Ali has a point that things do get, the word does get out if um, if a book is banned, someone, in some cases, it makes a book even more attractive. In fact, historically, the label banned in Boston was sought after by some authors in the, in the 20th century and the late 19th century, but especially the early 20th century, because they felt that, and they did, it did increase the book sales tremendously. So if a book is controversial these days, chances are it will be it will be uh, discovered and read by by young people. In fact, I was talking with friends of my of my age uh, the other day, and everyone could remember passing around an old copy of Peyton Place because <laughs> with the parts underlined. We didn't read the whole book; we just were looking for the naughty parts, right? <laughs> But, and I think a lot of kids do that. It would be much better for them to have and the opportunity to read a book under the guidance of a librarian or a teacher or a parent than to be passing books around like that. 
Thanks for the call, Allie. That point from Allie about access, though, I've seen it kind of flipped around uh, on the other side. Well, okay, if we've taken it off the shelf in the school library or the library, no problem. If a parent really wants to have this book for their kid, uh, they can find it probably uh, online. They can order it. So the harm of removing it isn't so great. What do you think of that, Louise? Well, I think that the harm varies. Libraries are especially designed to serve everyone. So the, those people who don't have access to large uh, resources uh, to purchase things are much more likely to gain access to information, to good reading, to the internet, to online resources through a public library. There, if you go into the library most days, you can find people using the computer to, for job applications or to do research on what skills they need to get a particular job. There are all kinds of things that libraries are used for. They are used to develop people's reading skills and their, their information literacy skills, to create community. Um, many, many, many roles that the library has these days. So, uh, and books, access to books is one big important one, but in some ways is only only one part of the role of libraries, but it's most important for those who don't have inexhaustible resources to order online or to search, spend all the time looking in news bookstores. Let's bring in another caller now. Jerry is with us in La Crosse. Jerry, hi. Yeah, hi. I, I, I keep thinking that this subject is, is very interesting and very important that, um, book banning and or, or compulsion, as one listener talked about, are, are very important. Uh, and it's related to other issues. Uh, the other issue I want to mention is health teachers. Uh, we have bo books in the, in the school library. We also have health teachers. And these teachers are walking a very careful tightrope. They have to be very careful about what they say they have to be very careful about how they react to certain students' comments. Uh, they are, you know, really um, worried. I gotcha. Jerry, thanks for the call. Louise, I know you mostly focus on the library side of thing. Do you share Jerry's concern about, uh, I guess, a chilling effect on, on what teachers can say if they're teaching health or uh, American politics or, or you name it? I absolutely do. And health is an important one. I know the when I first began my library career, the person that I worked under hid the only book on human development in the library when there were so many kids who really needed that book. Uh, they'd had no idea what was going on in their own bodies and they needed it. Um, so, <laughs> but I wasn't in charge and so I had to fight for that one. But I agree that there, it's very um, concerning that people have to be so careful and they have to be careful about things they shouldn't have to be careful about. I mean, we should be able to talk about our history. We should be able to talk about people's identities. We should be able to talk about health and, and so on. So I'm very concerned that, that we are completely altering how people learn in a negative way. Thanks for that call. And Louise, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you.
That's Louise Robbins, Emeritus Professor of Library and Information Studies at UW-Madison and author of the book, The Dismissal of Miss Ruth Brown, Civil Rights, Censorship, and the American Library. She joined us to talk about President Biden's plan to name a point person in the Education Department to address the rise in book bans in school libraries and other libraries over the last couple of years. Coming up after the news, it's this week's edition of Food Friday. We'll find out how to pick the perfect skillet for our cooking needs. You can get things started right now. Do you have a skillet that, uh, you know, you'll guard it with your life, something that you've really relied on in the kitchen? Or do you have a question? If you're about to go shopping, email ideas at WPR.org or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network.